Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to First Move this Friday, where we begin with breaking news. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has tested positive for coronavirus. Here's a video he posted on Twitter a short time ago. Hi, folks. I want to bring you up to speed with something that's happening today, which is that I've developed mild symptoms of the coronavirus. That's to say a temperature and a, a persistent cough. And on the advice of the chief medical officer, I've taken a test that has come out positive. So I am working from home. I'm self-isolating. And that's entirely the right thing to do. Uh, but be in no doubt that I can continue, uh, thanks to the wizardry of modern technology, to communicate with all my top team to lead the national fight back against coronavirus. And I want to thank everybody who's involved. I want to thank... Nick Robertson is in Downing Street for us. Nick, it feels like it was only a matter of time until we saw some world leader catch the coronavirus. But I assume now, given his interactions with his cabinet, they will all be tested too, in addition to him now being in isolation. Well, we've just heard that the Secretary of State for Health, Matt Hancock, obviously at the forefront of Britain's effort to combat the coronavirus, has also now tested positive. Government officials earlier had said that no other, or they were not aware of other government members that were being tested after the Prime Minister tested positive. The advice to staff working in Number 10 is that there was no need for them to self-isolate unless they developed other symptoms. What we understand now is that, you know, Boris Johnson has said that he'll continue to work, do it by video conference, do it from up there in the flat at number 11 uh, Downing Street. Um, But the uh, staff are able to knock on the door and leave, you know, whatever documents and such like that he requires outside the office for him to, or outside his home there where he's self-isolating, for him to pick up. But the reality is um, that this is now impacting the upper echelons of governments around the world, principally here in Britain. I think if the Prime Minister were out here now speaking and trying to put a positive spin on this. He would point to the uh, Minister for Health, Nadine Doris, who tested positive about two weeks ago and actually came back for that final session of Parliament yesterday, sitting on the front benches. Uh, And the Prime Minister, as he says, intends to continue working by teleconference to continue leading the government in this challenge. It's interesting because we've seen a further crackdown or a lockdown in the UK this week and we were looking at empty streets, Trafalgar Square empty. I just, I wonder whether this now is some kind of game changer for the British public that perhaps weren't following the, the advice that authorities were giving them. If he can catch this, anyone can catch this. 
Yes, uh, you know, perhaps, obviously, Prince Charles testing positive earlier in the week, but then he's not, uh, people couldn't put themselves on a par with him by any stretch. But I think what we're seeing now, and there is still, you know, some traffic out and some people out working, builders uh, in particular, one notices uh, road work still being performed on the streets of the, the city here. There are still quite a number of people out, despite what the Prime Minister has said. And I, and I get a sense that there is a core of people, and this was always the government's assessment, that there would be a minority, a small core of people that wouldn't adhere to, to the government's instructions that they should stay at home unless it was absolutely needed that they would, that they would go out for work, being vital workers, or, or for any other reason other than to get food or for one uh, piece of daily exercise. So I, I, I'm not sure that this actually will be a game changer for that hardcore, but I think most people in this country now really get that this is serious. They've heard about the desperate situation for people working in the health service, nurses, doctors, and others who are short of that protective equipment, that the government has been scrambling to try to find ventilators. Uh, the prime minister now, um, it will be a very sombering message but for that tiny handful, I, I think they're shrugging this off, somehow thinking it's not going to be them. Oh, I know. And you have to watch that message because he reiterated at the end, please stay at home. Nick Robertson in Downing Street, thank you so much for that. And our best wishes to the Prime Minister, of course, and to the Health Secretary and all those affected by this virus all around the world. Now, while we might be uh, coming into a Friday here and the start of a strange weekend for many of us, it's another where brave caregivers, as Nick mentioned there, all around the world will go on fighting to save lives. And we thank those heroes. All right, let me give you a sense of what we're seeing elsewhere today. U.S. futures are softer, as you can see, pre-market after a blistering rally for stocks in the previous session. The U.S. majors rising over 6%. That gains for a third straight day. It's a similar story, too, in Europe. I can give you a, a quick look at that. If we can, Asia stocks also closed higher, despite fresh numbers showing Chinese industrial profits falling almost 40% in February and South Korea consumer sentiment falling to the weakest level since 2009. I have to say, not unexpected. Weaker data now has to be expected. The Dow's rally Thursday means it's now risen 20% from the intraday lows it hit just last Monday. That qualifies as a textbook definition of a fresh bull market. And in fact, we've seen headlines proclaiming that the bull market is back. Guys, it's great to see the markets bounce. It shows perhaps that some of the monetary medicine from the Federal Reserve and other central banks is helping to stabilize the system. We've certainly seen that with the US dollar. We also hear that corporate deals are once again being priced. So that market's unlocking to a certain degree too. The $2 trillion aid bill expected to pass the House today or tomorrow will of crucial support to families and struggling businesses too. But the data, as I've mentioned, on the real economy is going to be bad, really bad for quite a while yet. And I think we also have to put things into some degree of context as well. Stocks are still off some 20% or more from their all-time highs. Bear markets simply don't hit bottoms or form bottoms that easily. And massive rallies do tend to happen during bear markets. We actually saw two huge bounces of 17% during the financial crisis that were quickly wiped out and more. 
that's the context here. And I have to say, to quote Dr. Fauci, it still feels that only the virus sets the timeline here. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, I'm couching it very clearly here. We've seen this in the past. One of yeah. those rallies that we saw in, in the financial crisis, I think we went up 17% and then we yeah. were down, or 27% and then we were down 50% plus cautiousness here. Oh, yeah. When I was covering the Chicago futures pits, I mean, the traders would always say, beware the bear market bounce. Uh, and that is likely what this is. I know a lot of people are, are talking about the technical headline in the Dow that a new bull market has been born. But this has been such a unique and swift demise of the old bull market. I would be very, very careful here because the headline risk, you're so right, Julia, is just it's just uh, limitless, quite frankly, because we are at the mercy of virology, not necessarily traditional economics and P&Ls like we usually are. So watching this very, very uh, carefully. Remember, the last three days were uh, just a very blistering, as you say, ferocious bounce back. So likely of people who are trying to take profits after what's been a very unprofitable uh, five or six weeks. Yeah, people that were short as well, perhaps scrambling to buy back. Yeah. A liquidity bounce. I think that's uh, one of the technical terms here too. And as you and I have been discussing in the, the jobless claims data in the United States, we didn't get a clear picture and we're starting to learn further information about the claims offices simply not being able to deal with the sheer quantity of people coming forward and saying, hey, I need help here. Yeah, and we had anecdotally, both of us had, had, had been hearing from people who said, look, I, I'm not one of those 3.2 million numbers. I tried to file for unemployment benefits and I couldn't. The website crashed. I couldn't get through to the office. It was completely overwhelmed. I was hours on hold in some states. And now you're hearing from the state uh, labor offices that the, the, the process those jobless claims that, in fact, uh, a lot of those did not even get a chance to go through. They had problems just overwhelmed by the surge of people, a historic surge of people looking for jobless benefits. And New York alone, they said they had 1.7 million calls for jobless benefits, but only 80 or 81,000 were actually processed in the week. So you're right completely, Julia, that the next weeks and maybe months of data are going to be just harrowing. Christine Romans, thank you so much, as always. Great to have you with us. Let's go to Washington now, where the U.S. House is set to vote on that $2 trillion emergency aid package today. Representatives rushed to Washington, though, after word a Republican could go rogue to derail a voice vote. John Howard, uh, Howard joins me now. John, great to have you with us. Uh, Thomas Massey, the Republican from Kennedy, perhaps the least liked man in D.C. after suggesting that he may not approve via voice vote and call a roll call, which meant people had to simply come to D.C. during a health crisis just in case that happens and they have to be present to vote. Ouch. Julia, one of the things about uh, American politics is, and politics everywhere is that it attracts a certain number of highly eccentric people who imagine that uh, their beliefs are uh, vitally important to be uh, upheld in every circumstance. Uh, Thomas Massey calls himself a constitutional conservative. Uh, he uh, votes no an overwhelming amount of time uh, for various reasons, thinking that uh, measures Congress is taking violate the Constitution. He once did the same thing, insisted on a voice, uh, voice uh, uh, roll call vote rather than a voice vote to honor the legendary golfer uh, Jack Nicklaus, something was a completely a harmless measure. So now he is putting the health of his colleagues at risk by insisting that they fly back 
uh, and the health of not just his colleagues, but their aides and members of the media and others by insisting that they fly back because he might object. Now, we don't know for certain that he's going to do that. Uh, he is certainly going to be facing a lot of peer pressure uh, from colleagues, but uh, this is somebody who doesn't mind being hated. Uh, and if he if he enjoys being hated, he's going to get a lot more of that today if he insists on this uh, roll call vote. Terribly expensive principles, I think, to uh, to stand by here, John. I think you said it perfectly there. And for balance, I should say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez also said to CNN yesterday that she might do this, though the expectation is she wouldn't. So uh, there's clearly people who aren't happy with this bill, but it's for higher purposes just to get money to people here. Is the expectation that however this happens, the bill will pass? Well, that, that's the thing. Uh, it, it's one thing to stand up for a principle if you have a chance of prevailing. It's another thing to stand up for a principle when you have zero chance of prevailing, but a non-zero chance uh, of making some of your colleagues, many of whom are uh, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, are vulnerable to the coronavirus. Uh, there's a much greater chance that you could... Uh, Actually, we just lost uh, John's microphone there, but um, the point he was making was... Uh standing up and uh, preventing this vote being done by voice endangers the lives of uh, colleagues and members of the House there and for no purpose because the bill will pass. So an uncomfortable day, I think. We'll see how that plays out this morning. Now, the United States is the new epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. It now has more reported cases than any other country in the world. Almost half of those are here in New York. Bryn Gingras is uh, at Elmhurst Hospital for us. Bryn, great to have you with us. Um, actually harrowing stories coming out from various hospitals in New York of the pressure that medical staff are under and that the people that they're, they're trying to save. Just talk through some of the experiences that you've been hearing about. Yeah, I mean, certainly we've been talking to a lot of people outside here in Elmhurst Hospital, which is in Queens. Uh, this borough has seen the most cases out of any borough in New York City. Uh, and this particular hospital is seeing the most cases. It's really the center of the epicenter of this pandemic at this point. Uh, in the last 24 hours, there have been four deaths. The 24 hours before that, the day before that, there were 13 deaths, Julia. So this, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's taxing. Uh, you talk to doctors and nurses coming out and uh, they tell us that they are busting at the seams with patients who are trying to get care, uh, that they are short on equipment, even though that it's being said there's plenty of equipment for the next week or two weeks, but they still feel like that they're short. Uh, another nurse told me she's in a constant state of paranoia. She left a 24-hour shift wearing all of her protective gear, and uh, she says she's not so much worried about getting sick herself, but if she gets sick, and then passes it on to other patients. That's what she's fearful of, rightfully so. Uh, behind me, I want to show you this line. I mean, this is a line, Julia, that we have been uh, seeing all week. We've been here every day of this week, and this line always is like this or longer. It doesn't really seem to ever get shorter. These are people who are trying to just see a doctor. It doesn't necessarily mean they'll actually get a coronavirus test, but they just want to see a doctor because they're not feeling well. And some people here are waiting in lines for hours just to see that doctor. I actually saw one woman a couple days ago hobbling over in her walker with her family members holding her up then get in that line. I mean, it's just heartbreaking to see that. And, and you really would be hard pressed to see anywhere in this immediate neighborhood um, to find anyone who isn't wearing a mask. Uh, it, it's really, it, it feels 
it's it's very stressful. I'm not going to lie to you about about the situation here, and uh, I can't even imagine what it's like inside. Never mind outside. Neither can I. I mean, the equipment's one thing, but it's the medical staff. It's a shame we can't bring medical staff from from other states that are have less of an issue to to help the the ones here at this moment. Bryn, great job. You've been doing an incredible job. Thank you for reporting on this story. Um, Harrowing for everyone, I think, involved. All right, coming up on First Move, help is on the way. U.S. manufacturing companies wait for the government aid after work comes to a screeching halt. And on the flip. Welcome back to First Move. Stock futures still pointing to a lower open this Friday after three days of gains. Just to give you a context on what we're seeing here, for the week so far, all the major averages are up 11% or more. A major improvement after last week's losses of more than 12%. All that makes me think about is whiplash, quite frankly. That said, new numbers show investors pulled more than $13 billion from stock funds just in the past week. They poured some $250 billion into money market funds, so lower risk assets. That's the way you have to uh, see that. The dollar index reversing higher, but still down around 4% for the week. That's its biggest drop in over a decade. So that does tend to suggest some of the stress, the dollar hoarding that we've been seeing is filtering out of the system. Now, all across America, restaurants have closed as the country embarks on social distancing to limit the spread of the coronavirus outbreak. This has led consumers to, uh, some consumers at least, to increase their use of alternatives such as meal kit provider Blue Apron. Blue Apron delivers ingredients and recipes for meals people can cook at home. Joining us now, Blue Apron CEO Linda Findlay-Kozlowski. Linda, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Just talk to us about what you're seeing and what changes you're having to make to encompass and, and adapt to meet the demand that you're seeing. Well, first, I just want to say thank you to all the first responders and, and healthcare workers. Um, they're on the front line around the world. Um, you know, they are obviously having to adapt more than we do, and they're selflessly helping others in the face of this pandemic. So um, we are seeing increased demand and we are continuing to ramp up our our fulfillment center capacity in order to try to get as many meal kits into as many homes as possible. And that is, we see as our biggest um, requirement right now is how can we get food for people in the face of this ever-changing situation. So we are adding staff and we're hiring as quickly as possible as many as 300 people across our New Jersey and our California facilities to try to um, get more food to more people as quickly as possible in the next few weeks. A lot of us look at what's happening in the United States and can visualize pictures of bare shelves where people are... Uh, panic buying, hoarding certain food items. Are you having any trouble with your supply chain and and getting the ingredients you need to put these meal kits together? No, we've actually had no disruption in our supply chain um, of any significance to this point. And part of that is because even in normal circumstances, we have a very tight supply chain and, and a variety of suppliers that we can work with in order to source food for our boxes. Um, we rotate through different suppliers each week based on the ingredients that we're using. And so because of that, we have a really, really strong network of suppliers that we're, we're happy to be able to continue to provide business to in this time of stress. So we have a lot of control over our supply chain and we have a lot of alternatives and we are able to still source the highest quality ingredients with the highest quality standards um, during this time and continue to provide business to those suppliers. You're hiring as well at a time when 
We're fearful of, of restaurants letting go of workers and hopeful that the money from this aid package comes through quickly to allow these businesses to at least retain their staff. You're actually hiring. Yeah, actually hiring for a combination of permanent and temporary positions. So if somebody has been displaced from the food services industry, um, we have options for them where they can return to work later. Um, but we also had permanent positions open before that we are still continuing to fill. And um, so we're really looking for the best quality people that we can provide employment to during this difficult time, but also in something that's servicing a lot of people who really need food in their homes on a weekly basis and don't necessarily have an alternative to get it. Can I ask you what you make of the, the stimulus package or the, the aid package? A lot of the focus has been on simply getting money to to businesses, is businesses that are in need at this moment. One of the big fears is that the money simply won't come quickly. Just in your experience as a, as a business leader, is that the concern, sort of managing cash flows for some of these businesses that will be now critical how quickly this money comes is critical yeah i think the speed of, of getting aid is, is is extremely important and that's a big part of why we're focused so quickly on trying to hire and staff up because we want to be able to provide help to as many people as possible as quickly as possible but i think that speed and making sure that the the right level of distribution because companies are hurting right now and small businesses in particular are hurting right now. And so I think it's it's really all about speed and efficiency of getting the funds to where they need to go as quickly as possible. How many people are you hiring? Can I ask that? I know you said you were already trying to hire people, but can you give me a sense of how many people you're actually looking for at this moment and where? So we have 300 open positions in um, Linden, New Jersey, where our fulfillment center is there and also in Richmond, California. And so we are um, using remote interviewing technologies to try to make these interviews as safe as possible. Obviously, in these facilities, we want to enhance what's already very, very stringent safety standards, um, not just CDC, but SQF um, uh, food safety, which is one of the highest in the world. So we're extremely careful about how we hire and how we staff. Mm -hmm. And also from a hiring perspective, we wanna make it as comfortable as possible for the people who are hiring. So we're using technology to actually do remote interviewing so we can bring people in faster and safer. It makes perfect sense. You've been challenged as a business, Blue Apron, and there is skepticism that the bump that you're seeing now in, in demand won't last. Do you see this as a, a pivotal moment? Because one of the big expenses for you has simply been getting your name out there and letting people know that you're available and this is an option. How do you view the company's future from this point? As, as painful as this moment is, do you think it's, it's going to help you actually just spread the word of what you do and what you can do? Look, we take the situation that we're in um, as a country very, very seriously right now. And we look at this as something that is not necessarily part of our business model. This is, we, you know, this is, this is just tragic. And so frankly, we've been working and had stated our plan for growth, stated that we were looking at strategic alternatives for growth. And we continue to believe in that plan and believe in that focus. In the meantime, we're very focused on how do we actually um, serve more people right now. We're not considering this a change to our strategy or a change to something, and uh, you know that would that would actually change the trajectory of the business. This is a tragic incident. You know, this is this is a pandemic. This is not a business model. And so, what we're trying to do right now is deal with this temporary volume and and really help people through that and stay focused on the long term of the business. Well said, Linda. And uh, we share your views to the heroes out there that are 
on the front lines of uh, trying to help people in this crisis. Great to have you with us. Linda Findlay Kozlowski there, CEO of Blue Apron. All right, we're counting down to the market open this morning. We're expecting a bit of softness. We'll be back after this with that and more. first move. The trading day is underway for the final time this week on Wall Street. And as expected, we've got a slightly softer open, as you can see, for the Dow and the S&P 500, actually moving to down more than three, three and a half percent, as you can see here, the Nasdaq all over the place. Now we're lower by three percent. And I was taking my time there saying that because, as you could see, we were seemingly positive for the first few moments there volatility for all the gains that we've seen this week. The key is that these markets remain incredibly volatile. The VIX index, the fear gauge, as it's known for stock markets, is incredibly high, above a level of 60, which denotes extreme fear still. So all this worth bearing in mind with the movements that we're seeing. Now, the Dow is coming off its best three-day run, in fact, since 1931. To give you context, it's risen 20% from its worst levels hit earlier this week. That's effectively the definition of a new bull market. I bet few on Wall Street, though, believe the bear has been banished just yet. Remember the data. We found out yesterday that almost 3.3 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits in the past week alone. The population of Chicago is 2.7 million people, so it's more, far more than the population of Chicago, all claiming unemployment benefits in just one week. And there's more to come. Well, let's have a look at what we're seeing as well elsewhere in terms of asset classes. Classic risk-off action going on in U.S. Treasuries. As you can see there, yields coming down. That means bond prices rising. People buying bonds when they're nervous about what's going on. We've also got oil, Brent, both under pressure in the session, and gold losing a little bit of ground here too. Selling is the name of the game. Cross-asset selling. Now, support. That's what we need to talk about next. In Washington, the House is set to vote on the $2 trillion aid package, the largest emergency aid package, in fact, in U.S. history. The Senate, as you remember, approved it unanimously on Wednesday. Now, the National Association of Manufacturers called last week for the federal government to provide significantly sized loans to ensure liquidity for manufacturing businesses. And the association's president and CEO, Jay Timmons, joins us now on the show. Jay, fantastic to get your insight this morning. We'll begin by talking about that aid package. Is it enough in your mind to support the manufacturing sector and the businesses within it? Well, look, we're very pleased that this package is incredibly sizable package moved so quickly in a in a 100% bipartisan way to the United States Senate. We're hopeful that the House will get that done today. Is it enough? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think any of us do. But what we do know is that we have Democrats and Republicans, Congress and the administration working together to make sure that when we need the help, we're going to get the help. So if we have to come back and have another um, if we have to have another piece of legislation, so be it. But for right now, this is a great start. Let's get this, this capital into the system, especially for those small businesses that are so critical to the supply chain. 
I mean, that's a significant chunk of your membership. They are small and medium-sized enterprises. The hope here is that it will stem some of the job losses. Can you just give me a sense of, of what you're hearing from your members? Have they managed to retain their staff or have they had to make tough decisions and, and have simply already let people go? So I have to say, overall, it, it's not across the board, of course, but overall, manufacturers are doing everything they can to keep their teams in place because that employer-employee relationship is so incredibly important. When we come on the other side of this, this massive dip, uh, manufacturing is going to be going full guns. So we want to make sure that our, that, our skilled, that our skilled labor force is still with us and able to be productive. And I would like to say, Joy, I, I heard your, your statistics and understand certainly the concern that so many have uh, with where we are right now and why there's volatility in the market. But this is what I can tell you, just like World War II, when manufacturing was the arsenal of democracy, we are on the front lines today against this new enemy. We will prevail. It will be a difficult fight. But in the end, manufacturing will help drive this economy forward. And we are very proud to be a part of what we know will be a long term success in our country. I love, uh, I love the comment you made and the comparison that you make. Uh, I guess the only difference today with what we saw in the past perhaps was a more coordinated effort to galvanise production to be doing the things that we needed in wartime, whether that was weapons or, or materials of whatever kind. There are many that say this White House needs to utilise the Defence Production Act and coordinate, focus telling manufacturers, look, we need masks, we need ventilators, we need gowns, for example. We're already seeing companies doing it. Do, do you think there needs to be the use of the Defence Production Act and actually coordinate this at a national level better? Well, you just said it. We're already doing it. And manufacturers have stepped up right from the start, even before, I think, the country understood how difficult this situation was going to be. So we've increased our production of gowns and masks and, and uh, personal protection equipment and medical supplies. Uh, we've, we've done everything we can to break down barriers for, for, for instance, 39 million gloves that were stalled uh, at the ports of Baltimore and Oakland. We got those out of, out of storage and into the hands of medical professionals. But look, th this is something, when you, you, when you do compare this to World War II, think about the long runway that, that we had, and hindsight is 2020, of course, this happened very quickly, and I'm so proud of manufacturers and how quickly they've responded. I said yesterday, and I'll say it again, I'm agnostic about whether the Defense Production Act is invoked. It's probably, if it happens, I understand it can happen on a case-by-case -case basis, and so be it. But what I can tell you is we don't need the Defense Production Act for us to do the right thing. Manufacturers already are, and they're doing everything they can to address the critical needs in this country. We've been working closely with the White House, with Dr. Peter Navarro, with FEMA, with HHS, with the Department of Homeland Security, with OMB to make sure that we have the right purchasing process in place. So this, this response is, is coming together day by day, but it is happening. And I'm very pleased that manufacturing can be a part of the solution of this very, very critical problem that we have right now. I take your point as well about how quickly we've everybody's had to react here, whether it's the medical professions, workers across all sectors as well. Agnostic is an interesting word, though. What benefit can you point to that perhaps the Defence Production Act and, and greater coordination would provide? Are you simply saying 
it, it wouldn't provide any greater benefit. Well, actually, it could in a case-by-case -case basis. So, right. and, and some need this benefit and some may not. But here's, here's the thing, we are coordinated, we're well coordinated with the federal government. In fact, FEMA is using the National Association of Manufacturers. We, we've polled our members, we have 1,600 manufacturers stepping up for more production of those personal protective equipment and medical supply items. We are also focusing on the food supply and making sure our food manufacturers are are able to produce what they, they need. The Defense Production Act, if it is invoked on a case-by-case -case basis, could actually provide government funding and loans and grants to help manufacturers repurpose their manufacturing lines. We haven't, we haven't had to have that quite yet, but we may. I just wanna leave the door open. I think the president was actually very smart to say that this is a tool that can be used. We may need to use it, we may not. Let's see, but let's not worry about you know, should we do it broadly? Should we not do it broadly when manufacturers are stepping up? I'll say one other thing that we're dealing with here in the United States, and it is a patchwork of, of decisions coming out of governors and localities on what is crit considered critical and essential to uh, our nation's, to, our, to, to this response to the pandemic and what is not. I've got a manufacturer, for instance, in Baltimore, some states may not have considered a wire uh, basket maker to be critical in, as part of our infra nation's infrastructure and response. He was called by a lab last Friday and said, look, can you make baskets to hold test tubes to be able to, to respond to all these tests that we're getting in? He'd never done it before. He repurposed his line on his own in a matter of hours, and they were able to fill this order by Sunday. So we, our message to governors and to mayors and local elected officials is assume that all manufacturing is critical, not only for medical supplies, but also for the food supply chain. And we're making the right decisions if we can't be a part of, of that particular solution and we're suspending operations. Business knows best. We actually heard the same from the head of the National Retail Federation. Clarify what's essential and that will reduce some of the supply chain and the system blockages here. Jay, and I also know that you um, you gave up your salary as well, because I know you're you're very conscious of protecting those that are working in this environment or not working in this environment. So I just wanted to uh, salute you for that as well and make people aware of that. And facing the reality, and look, I think that um, I think that um, um, when you said that business knows best, you know, I would say that a partnership between business and government in a time like this is absolutely vital and absolutely critical. We are seeing the importance of these key institutions like FEMA and others to uh, really solve this problem. And uh, we hope we never have to go through this again. We'll learn a lot. We'll have a lot of after action reports. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to address these types of challenges even more forcefully in the future. You're right. I'll clarify. Business understands its piece of the jigsaw puzzle best. Jay Timmons, great to have you with us. Please keep in touch. Thank Joya. you. Last, last note, Joya, thank you. And thank all of the reporters for all the great work that you're doing to keep us all in touch and to tell the story of what's happening. We, we appreciate all that you do to defend our First Amendment freedoms. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. All right, coming up next on First Move, counting the cost. Recovery for the travel and tourism industry could be a long haul. We'll speak to the CEO of Booking Holdings, booking.com. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. To another sector now, the travel sector, which has been brought to a virtual standstill due to the coronavirus outbreak. According to the World Travel and Tourism Council, 50 million jobs may be lost. The sector accounts for around 10% of global GDP. And the council says it could take 10 months for the industry to recover after the pandemic is over. Glenn Fogel is the CEO and president of Booking Holdings, the owner of Booking.com and other tourism websites. He's also one of the CEOs foregoing their salaries at this difficult time. Glenn, great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Do you agree with that assessment that it might take 10 months once we get the pandemic under control to see recovery or full recovery? Well, I think it's very hard to predict exactly mm. what's going to happen coming out. It could be shorter. It could be longer. You know, the thing we're concentrating on right now is dealing with the current issues and trying to help our customers, our partners, doing what we can, and of course, protecting our employees and what is obviously a very, very difficult situation. It clearly is. And I know you've taken measures to reduce costs. What are you doing about your employees? Because clearly, this is a time of great uncertainty because of the, the health crisis, but also given the risk of job losses here too. Are you having to make employees redundant at this stage? Well, I, it's something that no one ever wants to do. You always want, in your first phase, not go to employment cuts. You want to do other things first. And the second thing, you want to do something else. Third thing, something else. But we've seen across the industry, throughout the world, we've seen huge, huge cuts already. You probably saw the numbers from Marriott having the number of people they cut and all the airlines. We've been fortunate so far, and I'm doing everything I can to preserve the jobs we can. This is an area where we really need government help. Uh, the travel ecosystem, as you mentioned, 10% of GDP, maybe a third of a billion jobs. And these jobs, so many of them, are early jobs to get people onto that ladder of success. These are pests out of poverty, housekeepers, people who are putting out the deck tears, people who are taking jobs the first time they have a, a real job. We need to preserve this opening for people in the economy, and that's why we need the governments to really help out. Are the measures that the U.S. Congress is going to hopefully agree on today enough, whether it's initial cash payment or the expansion of unemployment benefits or even at the, the business level, the loans, the grants as they convert to if you retain employees? What's your sense? Is it enough? Well, it's a great start, and I'm looking forward to reading that it is passed. I know that there, you know, there's still some issues happening. I'm sure it will pass, and that's a good start. And it's not just the U.S. Like we're a global company. We have over 300 offices around the world. We we operate in over 220 countries and territories. So it's great to see it's not just the U.S. governments that are doing this, but Europe, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, and then India just announcing that they're doing a. Uh, major fiscal stimulus package to help uh, preserve and help their people. We need governments from around the world to be looking at what is truly one of the most damaging things in our economic world ever. And they need to step up, provide the funds to preserve these jobs because this will pass. We know this will end. Pandemics do end. So we need to be positioned correctly to be able to come out and, uh, and build from there. It's so important, the stabilizing force for the next few months, we hope, to enable a stronger recovery and an opening up of business once we get through this. 
Glenn, what's your sense of the risks of opening up, restarting business before the medical experts are convinced that we are in control of this pandemic, whether it's in one country or, or elsewhere, because we're all watching China very closely. Would that be probably the worst case scenario for business, a false start on restarting the economy? What's your view? Well, look, we, we recognize that no one's going to want to have a restart of the virus. That's one thing people do not want. So governments are going to appropriately look at what is the right balance between starting economies and then having the virus rebuild up again. We know from SARS, which was a terrible thing almost 20 years ago, 2002, 2003, where even after the virus was gone, people were still somewhat cautious about international travel. So demand did not come up right away because people were scared. But governments on the other side were doing things to help try and prevent a resurgence of that virus by still having uh, fever checks at airports and other ways to try and make sure that they weren't seeing a reimportation of that virus. I think even after we get past the virus, governments are still going to want to maintain some ability to look out for people coming back in with it from other countries. So that's going to put a little bit of a dampening on international travel. I think domestic travel will come up much faster. And I think that, you know, I leave it up to the medical experts and the people who really understand those things better. When should we restart our economies with travel? But I do know that the important thing from my point of view is to be prepared. So when that happens, that we can start helping get that economy and the travel industry going again. You know, the thing is, it's, it's like the, um, the great hockey, great Wayne Gretzky. So you, you, don't, you don't skate to where the puck is. You got to skate to where it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, travel is going to come back down the road when the pandemic ends, which it will. We've got to be prepared when that happens to get out running. Sir, fantastic to have you with us. We wish you well. And of course, all your workers around the world. Glenn Fogel of Booking Holdings. Great to have you you with us. Stay with us. We're back after this. Right, take a look at this. The Dow rally this week qualifies as a textbook definition of a new bull market. And in fact, we've seen headlines proclaiming the bull is back. But is that really what this is? Richard Quest joins me now. Richard, we can talk about this, but um, oh, I can already hear you groaning. No, the bulls, the bulls versus the bears. I love it. I mean, we are we are taking 20th century terminology, 19th century terminology, and putting it into this vast new arena, otherwise known as volatility and quantum and, and all of that. And I look at this, look at the share price. <laughs> Excuse me, look at the share price of certain stocks, the way they bounced back over the last few days. Um, it's not normal. These are abnormal times. Uh, but for the, the, the long-term investor, the bull has not died. Oh, that's such a great point. Because you have to remember your time horizon for investing here. You know, I've been nervous and I've been nervous about and you've been suggesting perhaps we could see a a mini bounce here. And you are absolutely correct. If you are a short term investor, then you could have made 20 percent back here. But to your point, and I completely agree with you, there's more to come here in terms of uh, volatility. Richard, I want to ask you about travel because I know you're our expert on this tickets, people who've got tickets now that are outstanding. This is a huge problem. 
It's a huge problem for anyone who had a ticket and doesn't want to do it. Now, the, the flight may have already been cancelled because of government regulations, and you're stuck. Uh, you can be stuck with a credit on an airline that you're not going to fly. And they're not giving cancellation. They're not giving refunds. And I know why they're not giving refunds. You can work it out. It would be a huge drain on Treasury if they have to refund revenue they've already got. And there's no easy answer. And you can't get through. For, I'm getting lots of emails from from uh, viewers who are just worried. They've, they've been cancelled. They can't get through to the airline or the travel agency. It's going to take months after this is over to unsort it. And meanwhile, the airlines are still in a desperate situation. This is not just bailout. They are on their knees. So very quickly, do you just have to be patient? New travel, when things get up and running, will be bookable. But for those people that are trying to battle with credit, it's just going to take some time. Three things. One, look at your credit card. Can you reverse the charge? Two, if you're going to travel with that airline in the future, just sit tight. Three, if it's an airline that you wouldn't have normally traveled with, be, be prepared for a hell of a fight. Richard Quest, always fantastic to have you on with us. Thank you for that. Thank you. All right, we're wrapping up here, but I want to leave you with our appreciation for those on the front lines fighting the coronavirus all around the world. This was a tribute. On Thursday evening, British people showed their admiration and gratitude for healthcare workers from their homes. Goodbye from me, and I'll see you next week. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.